Good morning, Aaron. How are you? Fantastic. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Dude, I got to ask you, the, the reason for this book, is it because you're like I am? We're, we're in the Carolinas. REM is a huge part of our southern roots. And it's like, oh, my God, when you dig into this band, you're always going to get something that is going to be shared with the rest of the world because there's something in our dirt down here. Well, uh, I grew up in Raleigh, uh, was born in 1968 and was a kid in the 70s and a teenager in the 80s. And I discovered R.E.M. through WQDR, the mm-hmm. radio station in Raleigh. I don't know if you remember them. Uh, you know, because R.E.M. had recorded their first two albums in Charlotte uh, and played in North Carolina a ton early on, there was a big connection mm-hmm. with North Carolina. And when I was 15, they were played on WQDR, the mainstream rock fm station in raleigh so i was able to hear them that way instead of hearing them on college radio so that was how i was first exposed to them yeah one of the things that my program directors and music directors always said anytime that rem had something that they wanted to have on the air the answer was always yes i was told that so many times the answer arrow is yes and so and because we embrace them as 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 a part of our lives for sure and as i said you know there was a north carolina for the first three or four years of their career was like their second home, really. I got to tell you something, though, John, though, because we were we were one of the early stages of, of uh, um, alternative music here in the Carolinas. But when Top 40 started playing R.E.M., I in all honesty, I was offended because it was like, this is our music. But no, it was time to sh- start sharing it with with Top 40 music. Well, I mean, I would respectfully disagree with that. At the time, I wanted R.E.M. and their and their placements in Husker Du and the Connells, if you remember them, yes. North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, I grew up a massive fan of the Connells and uh, in Raleigh. And, you know, I wanted all those bands to be on the radio. You know, would I rather hear Def Leppard on the radio or hear the Connells or R.E.M.? I mean, that's a pretty, a pretty obvious choice. So I was, you know, I was rooting for them to to succeed and to make it and, to their credit, REM did. Uh, as I write in the book, that did create some resentments, I think, along the way from original fans who, as you noted a second ago, maybe did not want to share them with the rest of the world. But that's, I guess that's part of it for any band that succeeds like they did succeed. Yeah, because it, it, it was all based on that we, you know, everybody was screaming for an alternative radio station. And we thought that we had really found ourselves. And then and then all of a sudden, what became the alternative? But it, the, the song that was played every 45 minutes. Yeah, and you could say the same thing happened to Nirvana, maybe. Yes, you're absolutely right. like teens, teens, you know, there's always going to be that tension when a band that has been part of a smaller scene blows up nationwide or worldwide. I have read biographies of the Beatles where they talk about the original fans in Liverpool were very upset when the Beatles hit nationally in England. I, I, you know, they had come out of this small scene that was like Athens, Georgia in England, where they were a local local stars, and yeah. then all of a sudden they're they're national stars and then worldwide stars. And that does create, I think, some tension among the fans who were there at the beginning. I don't know how you get around that. Yeah. The book we're talking about is Maps and Legends, the story of R.E.M. We've waited a long time for this song, John. And I'm, this, this is one of those things that we really needed to have. This book is just unbelievable. Thank you so much. Uh, there have been some great biographies of R.E.M. before. Tony Fletcher wrote one called Perfect Circle. Um, David Buckley, a British writer, wrote one called Fiction. That's an excellent biography. Uh, but I think one thing I tried to touch on that hadn't been covered so much by previous books was 
the story of their teenage years and the bands mm -hmm. they played in before REM and kind of how they got to the point of being REM. And then also I cover what the various members have done after the breakup with their solo careers. Mm -hmm. So now when, when you talk about the teenage years, right away I jump into that line because, I mean, I, I grew up in a garage band. We were Every Thursday and Friday we were in that garage pretending that we were going to be rock stars one day. And, and so when you have this book like this, it, it takes me back to my own early days of music as well. For sure, I, I did that. I think I think a lot of kids who were into music when they were teenagers gave it a go. Uh, and REM certainly had their share of false starts along the way. Uh, one of the things I write about is that Michael Stipe played in this punk band called Bad Habits in Illinois uh, before moving to Athens to start REM. And Bill Berry and Mike Mills played in a band called The Backdoor Band in Macon, Georgia when they were in high school. Uh, so they definitely... Uh, even Peter Buck had played in various sort of garage rock bands uh, in Georgia where he, where he grew up. I was going to ask you about that punk scene because that, that's one of the things we, you know, even though we called it alternative, everything has roots. And so I was wondering if there was that punk connection in the band, especially when, when you hear a song like End of the World. It's like, my God, that, that has its own sight and sound. For sure there was that punk uh influence on the band uh you know one of the things again that i write about in the book was that in 1978 when the sex pistols played yeah. the first show of their first and last u.s tour it happened to be in atlanta because the sex pistols manager malcolm mclaren thought that the best place to sort of shock the provincial people would be at you know have the sex pistols play in the south and create a riot <laughs> and peter buck was there he was in the audience uh and as i write in the book he had to sneak in because he was supposed to have a ticket, but they didn't have it at the world call window. So he kind of ran past the bouncer, snuck in, saw 10 minutes of the sex pistols, and then he got kicked out and beaten up in the parking lot. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, mm. But, you know, he was influenced by that. Michael Stite was very influenced by Patti Smith, television, and other New York punk artists. And I would say, you know, part of the appeal of REM and their replacements and other bands like that at the time was that for me who was a teenager in the early 80s you know rock had become this enormous thing and everybody was playing arenas and uh, you hear these myths of the beatles playing at the cavern club or the rolling stones playing at the marquee in london and now they're playing the local uh you know baseball stadium but you could go see rem in a club just like the beatles at the cavern yep. club you know you could see them in a small venue you could see them face to face and i think that's what a lot of what the whole punk movement was about was uh, bringing rock back from these arena and stadium shows to something intimate and local that you could see. And of course, REM went on to become arena artists in their own right. So I guess it's, you know, it's a never ending cycle, but. But that's every reason why uh, when, when a, a PR person calls me up and says, hey, look, I've got a band here. They're unknown. They've got a brand new song that's coming out. It's their first one. Do you want to talk to them? To me, the answer is always yes, because I would have done the same exact thing with REM if the equipment it was as simple as, you know, back in, in the 80s and 90s. I could just haul it in there with, in, in my pocket. Yeah, and I think one thing that maybe we forget now in this internet age with YouTube and Zoom and Twitter and all the ways we have to connect is how hard it was for a band like that to get their message out there in the early 80s. And, you know, they did it the classic way. They got in a van and drove across state lines <laughs> and played shows played shows to eight people. Uh, 
and then drove to the next town and played a show to 20 people. And, you know, the next time they came back, they played to 50 people or 100 people. And uh, that's pretty much how you had to do it. Did they have a good relationship with with MTV? Because, I mean, to this very second, I can still see the song Everybody Hurts, the people getting out of their cars. That song just radiates inside my soul. Well, I think, you know, Losing My Religion blew up on MTV in the spring of 1991. I remember you couldn't turn on MTV and watch it for more than two hours without seeing that song. But in the 80s, when they were coming up, was MTV 100% behind them? I would say no. I do remember seeing the video for South Central Rain on MTV during the daytime, but mostly back then there was that show 120 Minutes yes. on Sunday nights at midnight. I'm sure you remember that. Oh, yeah. You know, my friends and I used to stay up religiously uh, until midnight on Sunday morning to watch REM and other alternative bands, but that's kind of the one window a week you had to see music videos like that. Uh, MTV might play REM's early 80s videos occasionally during the daytime, but you really weren't going to see them on MTV. Yeah. Yeah, do you, you know, there, there's there's been a big show on TV that's uh, just started up here a couple of weeks ago, uh, based on how grunge destroyed hairband music. Did grunge injure REM at all, or did it inspire them to keep reaching and keep developing their own sight and sound? That's a really good question. Uh, one of the things I write about in the book was that Kurt Cobain uh, famously gave an interview to Rolling Stone at the height of his success, where he said. Uh, REM have handled their success like saints. I don't know how those guys do what they do. I wish I could write a song half as good as they do. So Kurt Cobain obviously was a huge fan of REM, even when he was uh, slagging off Pearl Jam or Van Halen or the artists that he hated. So I I don't think, I think a lot of the grunge bands respected REM, but I would say that that shift towards harder, louder, angrier rock, probably did hurt their career to some degree even though they dipped a toe in that sound themselves with monster john we have to as as writers how did you get away with this book being so thick what did your editor do and and did they give you full permission to make this thing as as big and as beautiful as it is uh well one of the things i write about in the book is that peter buck and rem kind of had this attitude of i know what's best and i'm going to do things my way and i'd I self-published this book, so I didn't really have to answer to anyone in that regard. I had an acquaintance at our local bookstore here in Oxford, Mississippi, Square Books, one of the best bookstores in the country. He looked at it and he said, no one would have published this, you know, as thick as it is. And, uh, but that's how, how big it ended up being. And, uh, there wasn't really anyone to say no to me. Um, you know, in hindsight, maybe I wish it wasn't so thick. It's really expensive to ship. It mm-hmm. weighs two pounds, eight ounces. <laughs> and yet to a fan of music, I mean, this is the kind of books that, that I, to this day, you should see my library of rock books where I do judge it by its thickness. If it's not thick, I'm not getting the full word. I mean, I really love a giant book like this. Well, I don't, I don't think I don't think the page count automatically means it's a good book, but I, I do enjoy reading like Mark Lewiston's biography of the Beatles or James Kaplan's two-volume biography of Frank Sinatra. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of music biographies, obviously, mm-hmm. and Peter Goralnik's two-volume biography of Elvis Presley. Um, if if the subject is interesting enough and if, if the writer does a good job, then yes, I do want to read you know the whole story and... 
as much about this person or this artist as I can, you know, so I, I wouldn't say that just that the book is so many pages makes it good, but, uh, I joked to one of my friends that I kind of wish R.E.M. had broken up when Bill Berry quit. Cause I would have finished the book two years earlier. Oh boy. Cause you know, they, their career was 30 years long and there's a lot to write about, yeah. you know, from, from the early days through losing my religion and you know they kept going and going and going so it's it's a long story they had a very long career what's it going to be like for you john when you start hearing the jocks on the radio using uh things from your book because you know you know how we jocks are we like to have content we like to share the story of of so many of these bands and and there for a long time we weren't getting that information except from google i'm not a big fan of going to google because i don't know if, it, if it's not just clickbait well, if, if a DJ cited my book on air, if anyone read the book, I'd be grateful. I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I've, I've been lucky to get some good feedback from people who have read it. And uh, that means a lot when you spend five years doing something and then, you know, that it connects with anyone. I guess it would be like a band making a record. You put it out there and you hope people react to it. So if, if anyone took anything from this book, I would be very grateful and uh, proud. You talk about that five years when it comes to writing a book. I, too, am an author, and I know that it usually takes me anywhere between two to two and a half years to put books together. But one of the things that I deal with as a creative mind is I'm not getting that time back. How do you deal with those moments when you put so much of your life into those pages? Well, I had never written a book before, oh my so God. I, I didn't wow. I didn't really know what I was getting into, and I sort of started... And I told my wife I was doing it, and I didn't want her to think I'd quit, so I kind of had no choice but to keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, it's tough. What you just said about putting your time into it, you know, I work a full-time day job, and I'm married, and I have two cats, and I have a lot of other things going on in my life, so I kind of had to steal the time to write this book from the time I would ordinarily spend reading other people's books or listening to records. So for three or four years, you know, I didn't really listen to much music or read many books because I was too busy doing this mm -hmm. and that. I guess that's, I, I, I wouldn't say I regret that because I'm glad I wrote this book, but it was, it took all of the free time I would have otherwise spent reading and listening to music. What's what's so, your what's your what's your heart telling you right now when it comes to relinquishing the book? Because I mean, for the longest time, for five years, John, it's been mine, 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 mine. Now it belongs to us. Well, as I said a second ago, if, you know, if anyone, if one person read it, I guess that would be enough. You know, you just you, you put it out there and you hope, hope it connects with somebody. And so far, I'd have to say it's exceeded my expectations as far as how it's doing. And it's already in a second printing. I'm about to order a third printing. Wow. Uh, and even though I just complained about it taking all my time, I'm starting on another book. So. So now, when you were doing the research, did you have any oh wow moments or did you go into this book knowing pretty much what the story was going to be? Uh, I had kind of written it in my head before I started writing it, if that makes any sense. Yep. It's not that easy, but, you know, I'd thought about it a lot and then, you know, getting that on paper was harder. But I will say that in the course of interviewing people and doing research, I did have some of my preconceived notions uh, turned upside down about them. So it, it didn't turn out exactly like I thought it would. Yeah. Where were you at when the book idea came to you? Because my last book was written about John Lennon. It hit me when I was when I was walking through South Park Mall here in Charlotte. Where did, where did this idea hit you? 
I'd have to say it was something that was germinating for years or decades, mm -hmm. really. And uh, I got married relatively late in life, and that kind of gave some structure to my life that maybe wasn't there before. And, you know, I thought, if I don't do this now, will I ever do it? You know, it's something I'd thought about doing for quite some time. And I just thought I'll give it a go. And, you know, it turned out to be a lot harder than I thought it would be. Um, but I, I did manage to finish it. So, you know, one of the things that listeners need to understand about this book is the fact that I know that as that jock on the radio, one of the things that people loved about REM was the mystery. They were almost like that great mysterious band. This book gives us the opportunity to step into this gigantic world. And every question we ever had is going to be here on these pages. And we're going to go, oh, my God, do you know how long I've waited just to read this? Well, I, that's that's very kind of you to say. I don't know if it has every uh, answer, every detail. I, as I think I mentioned a minute ago, one of the things I am most proud of is I think I did manage to shine a light on their early years to a greater degree than anyone else has. And when I read a biography of, you know, the Beatles, uh, I'm more interested in their childhoods in Liverpool than I am in Sergeant Pepper yep. because once yep. they put out "I Want to Hold Your Hand," everyone more or less knows the story from there. Uh, how they got, you know, how they got to the point of becoming the Beatles to me is more interesting. Mm -hmm. And I would say the same of REM. Uh, you know, the various band members' childhoods I think are interesting. The sort of stabs they made at playing music before REM are, are very interesting to me. Um, I learned a lot about all that. And then sort of the one in a million set of coincidences and chance events that led to them all ending up in Athens, Georgia in 1979 at the same time and running into each other and sort of hitting this magic that none of them had ever hit in any of their previous bands. You know, it was definitely a case where, as the cliche goes, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you one thing that um, I know that just for a brief moment there, we talked about the breakup, but inside my creative heart, it's like, it's, to me, REM is still together because I have this book, Maps and Legends, the story of REM. I've got YouTube. I've got Alexa who will play REM for me anytime I want to. I just feel like that they are still such a major, major part of the story. Yeah. And also, you know, they, they didn't end uh, hating each other like the Smiths or, mm -hmm. or, the jam or so many other bands who've split on bad terms, you know, so they managed to part amicably. Uh, they do have this reissue program where every 25th anniversary of every album, uh, they reissue the album. The next one coming up is up, which will be 25 years old wow. this year. And so there should be a deluxe edition of that album, which is a lot better album than I think a lot of people give it credit for. And maybe this reissue will, make people go back and take a look back if they had kind of lost lost their connection with R.E.M. along the way that, you know, they did some some really good work after Bill Berry left, actually. Wow, wow. Dude, I can't thank you enough for this book. Please come back to this show anytime in the future because the door is always going to be open for you. Well, thank you so much. And I, I spent a lot of time in Charlotte as a kid. Uh, I don't know if you know Mount Holly, just outside of Charlotte, but yeah. that's where my grandmother lived, and I oh. spent a lot of summers there, so it's real pleasure to talk to you. Did you get down to the river when you were in Mount Holly? Uh, there was a river behind my grandmother's house or maybe <laughs> yeah. more of a creek. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, but you got to come back and see that area. That area has grown up so oh unbelievable today. I mean, it's, it's like one of those hot spots of the Carolinas. Uh, I was in Raleigh 
last summer, I think, for the first time in quite a while, and I was amazed at the difference from the way it was in the 70s when I was a kid. Amazed. <laughs> well, you be brilliant today, okay, John? Thank you so much. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for having me on your show. Thank you. Thank you, sir.